Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join guilt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible guest. You know, we're talking about his company, his journey. Uh, I find that his journey, you know, super inspiring, you know, building, scaling, financing, taking the company public. I mean, really remarkable, you know, what he's done. But, uh, but again, you know, we don't want to make you wait any longer. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Dee Chubi. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. So originally born in India, but I know that, uh, you know, your parents eventually came here to tackle the American dream. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> yeah, no, in the 80s, you know, my dad came to be a computer scientist. He got a master's from Syracuse. And uh, my mom and I, I was four years old. We kind of followed in tow with a couple of suitcases, a uh, very typical immigrant American story. Um, you know, uh, my dad moved to New Jersey, worked at Bell Labs as an engineer, um, so had been around the modems and routers as Bell Labs transitioned uh, into AT&T and then kind of changed hands into being Lucent. Um, so always had the ability to be around computers, tinker, uh, tinker with my, my father. Um, we lived the, uh, a great middle-class life. You know, uh, a lot of, you know, what we're building here today at Moneyline was influenced by that early immigrant story, if you will, right? We got, uh, I remember my dad and mom, they got denied for the Amex account. They got denied for the Discover account. And, you know, uh, we, we always used to talk about that around the dinner table as, you know, how, you know, uh, for, for, for a family, that was the dinner conversation um, and the importance of money and kind of, uh, you know, Using the tools that American financial uh, services ecosystem has to offer, uh, it wasn't always accessible to us, right? So, um, you know, the way we grew up certainly had, had a big influence in some of the career decisions I made over time and ultimately to the founding of, uh, of Moneyline. And how did you develop this, uh, this passion, this, this love for the intersection of finance and mathematics? Was that, you know, via the you know, kind of like the, the, as you were mentioning, like what your parents, you know, like were, uh, you know, really instilling, you know, in you early on? Yeah, look, you know, I think that uh, I was always, I was always interested in how, uh, you know, goods and services and money and uh, contracts moved uh, throughout our society, whether it was micro, I had the pleasure of working at the uh, Federal Reserve, 
when I was at the University of Chicago, that was my internship, making you know eight to ten dollars an hour back then in the early two thousands. Um, I, I did it for uh, beer money, uh, of course, but <laughs> along the way, you know, um, really was exposed to you know how the labor markets um, worked, how you know agriculture in the Midwest uh, impacts uh, you know shipping in the Northeast, and um, just kind of you know uh, commerce overall. And then, you know, really parlayed that uh, into a career in Wall Street, started uh, an internship at Lehman Brothers right after 9-11, saw kind of, you know, the country recovering. Um, you know, I'm sure later in the conversation, we'll be talking a lot about, you know, what, what do you do when you see massive shocks in the economy, right? So, of course, uh, coming right out of the dot-com bubble, we had 9-11, right? And, uh, you know, then when I joined Wall Street, we had five years or so of recovery, right? So, um, 03, 04, 05, we saw, we started to see a lot of the capital flow come in. Um, you know, after, after I started Wall Street, I started at City and I went to Goldman and I saw the LBO boom. Um, you know, I saw, you know, uh, $40 billion, $40 billion LBOs happening. Uh, I worked on a couple of them. You know, in the financial institutions group, we saw a lot of the banks, um, you know, really think, think about, uh, consolidation. There was a big boom, a wave of uh, bank consolidation. One of my clients was Capital One, so we walked, you know, we walked them through multiple, um, you know, acquisitions. They transitioned from a monoline credit card company into a full-fledged bank. Um, and if you look at what we did from a from a parallelism perspective at Moneyline in terms of how we built the full full spectrum suite of products, um, you know, that playbook for surrounding the consumer with no reason to leave your ecosystem. I had, a, I had an ability to see that firsthand advising the CEOs of some of the greatest iconic American financial institutions, right? Whether it was Discover, American Express, working on different types of transactions. Um, and then we also saw crashes. We saw another crash in 08, 09, right? When, um, you know, the availability of uh, cheap debt fueled um, the mortgage market, it fueled the LBO market. We saw that come down, right? Uh, the reason why we exist is because of that uh, credit crisis, right? The regulations were put in place that, you know, kind of really put the banks on the sidelines from innovating for technology. And we'll talk about what you guys are doing at Moneyline in, in just a little bit. But, you know, one thing that is very interesting here is obviously during your time in corporate, you know, you were working, as you said, you know, you did your internship in Lehman, you know, Goldman, then you did Citadel, Barclays. I guess, you know, more on the investment banking side of things, what were you seeing where you were able to see companies that were doing well from companies that were not doing so well when it came to pattern recognition? You know, what were some of those ingredients that you were seeing on companies that ended up doing magical things? Yeah, look, I, I think it, it always goes down to the ones that are customer obsessed over the long run will generate alpha. Right. And that was clear from working with iconic companies like American Express, with uh, with Capital One. Um, and then, you know, where, where we didn't see that um, success translate from just, you know, if, if you want to use the stock market or stock price alpha creation as a barometer, you didn't necessarily see that with the community and regional banks. Right. Um, because at the end of the day, those were just portfolios of assets and liabilities. A lot of these commercial and community and, and, and regional banks are uh, the reason why they exist is they they have a portfolio of commercial real estate or commercial loans or construction loans, and then they match that with deposits. Right? They take advantage of the fact that 
you know, they've got branches in a neighborhood and they get deposit funding, low cost deposit funding or access to the or sort of the wholesale markets to finance them. Uh, that's where you that's where unless, you know, someone had a very specific underwriting edge, we, we, we saw that those businesses would be the ones that got, either got bought out or consolidated or went out of business. But the ones that really focused on building for the consumer in the long run, the consumer could be an enterprise or a commercial client or an enterprise client. Um, you know, that, that, that was one, one thing that stood out. If you look at, of course, the, the tech companies, Amazon being the top one, um, that pattern exists there as well in a lot of ways. The power law curve, Apple and Amazon, they both, you know, espouse that. And there are very few banks and financial services companies that do the same. And that created the opportunity for disruption that fintech had. Now, let's talk about that disruption, because back in 2011, you know, you now had a very strong network. You know, you were alluding to dealing with people like Capital One, Amex. You had a good network into, into you know, that was deep into technology. But I guess walk us through how things ultimately unfolded towards you finding yourself, hey, I'm taking action. I'm, I'm, I'm giving my notice. I'm, I'm going and, and starting Moneyline. Yeah, look, you know, I, th I think that, you know, entrepreneurship doesn't have an age limit, right? You can do it when, when you're 18 or maybe even younger, and you can do it all the way till you know, there is no age limit there. But there are a um, confluence of events that need to happen in your, in your career trajectory arc. Like, I, I wasn't a technologist by training. I didn't go to Stanford. I, I didn't grow up in the West Coast where the entire network pushes you towards um, entrepreneurship at a much earlier age. Um, the network on the East Coast wasn't really built towards that. If you, if you think of New York City as one um, kind of uh, destination, uh, New York City at that point in time was the career arcs were either you're the lawyer or in Wall Street or you're in real estate, right? And they all had their own idiosyncrasies in terms of what you had to do to be successful. It was very uncommon when I did it to leave, uh, you know, at that, at that point, a cushy kind of uh, sort of compensation trajectory to leave Wall Street to go try to build something. Um, the, you know, when I first started, very smart people and very successful and in very high roles basically would go to, to the assumptions and basically try to say, look, you're going to have a hard time raising capital, financing this, credit modeling, the technology. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of reasons to say no, right? The confluence of events that led me to say yes was I had uh, I just gotten married. My wife was working in Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, I had a very supportive family. Those and it was the right time for me from a mental space perspective. Uh, I had two co-founders that I relied on for technical and engineering uh, from a technical and engineering perspective. They had just happened to sell their company. So they had they had time, they had resources to work on something without having to get paid immediately, right? So those confluence of events, uh, when I look back at it, was actually pretty special, right? It was it was the necessary conditions for the Cambrian explosion, if you will, right? Um, it's not every day that you get that. What what wasn't there was you know we're working we, we there wasn't a clear path. So if, if you're someone who just needs to be told what to do and then you, you'll do a great job at it. This is probably not for you because you have to really kind of go and create that canvas yourself, the roadmap. And, and nine times out of 10, you're going to do things wrong and you just need a lot of luck as well to get you 
from uh, at least from zero to point five in that in that initial journey, if you will. So then when you guys got going, you know, with this, you know, I mean, there was like uh, several stages. I mean, you did lending, robo-advisory. So what ended up being the business model of Money Lion, of the Money Lion that we know today? How are you guys making money? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the mission and the vision were exactly the same. In fact, I did it all hands yesterday. And we were, uh, you know, we were remarking on the fact that the, the mission statement was the same we started the business, rewiring the financial system so every hardworking American can live their best money life. We've tweaked it a little bit over the years, but it's more or less stayed the same. Um, and you know, to do that, the first thing that we, we, we said was like, look, where do we have a competitive advantage? Uh, if you think back to 2013 when we started the business, and um, you know, a lot of the things that we take granted for now just didn't exist. This, this massive, amazing API economy where you can use other companies' data for a small transaction fee, and you can you can access their identity data, their um, you know uh, their bank transaction data. That didn't exist. We had to build our own version of Plaid. We had to build our own version of identity management. But what we did say was, because we have a technical ability in artificial intelligence, there's a massive hype around AI right now. We've been pioneering it, and it's been in our DNA since the first day we started. The first day we started. You know, uh, our, our CTO built a uh, random forest model around uh, predicting default. Um, so the, and then we did that. We, we got our hands on a lot of uh, anonymized uh, credit data, transaction data. We spent months before we even started the business um, backtesting that and saying, hey, do we really have a edge here in predicting when a consumer would have money and when they would run out of money? Um, and we got comfortable enough. While we were still, you know, either exiting our previous gigs or still working, in my case, at a day job, uh, we 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 got comfortable that we had something here and that no one was really kind of looking at it this way. And we were using at that point the Facebook API. Um, we were looking at, um, you know, utility data. Uh, we we're looking at cell phone data. No one in financial services was really looking at it that way because. Uh, because of the regulatory environment, but because we were a brand new startup, um, you know, we said, "Look, let's look at everything. Let's have a paper portfolio, and let's see if we can predict when um, you know people have money and when they run out of money." And, and we were rel relatively successful at doing that. And then, of course, um, you know, we said, "Look, let's go uh, run these in the real world." And uh, we started off with lending, right? And we we were able to prove. Uh, with our own money um, that we were able to, you know, return the alpha versus, you know, where the uh, historical loss rates were. We took that to the VCs and we were off to the races from just our initial capital uh, to go build a cheaper, faster, more convenient, better, um, you know, online consumer lending business. And over time, you know, we said that, hey, we, the, the insight was, people love our brand, but they don't need to take a loan every day. They need to take a loan maybe once or twice a year when they have to smooth uh, their earnings or, or whatever you know, shock that they've had. But they do think about uh, rounding up every day. So we created a robo-advisor, right? So we, in, in 2017, after three years of really uh, honing in on the lending side, we started a robo-advisor. Um, and then two years later, we added the digital bank and so on and so forth. But it was all around this idea that we want to help the American consumer, the 90 million or so of us that self-identify struggling with finances, really take control on a daily basis 
use Moneyline uh, across inflection points, across different needs. Um, you know, in fact, it wasn't a popular opinion with uh, the venture capital world, right? They they always uh, urged us to do one or the other. But we said that the insight, we, 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 we went against that advice, and we said that the insight here is that the consumer doesn't think about their financial lives as four different separate apps. They think about it as one outcome or one objective from a first principles perspective that they want to drive towards. Um, and we also realized that ultimately to make this business model work, you had to have a diversity of revenue streams because the, uh, the, the customer acquisition you know, proposition for consumer was getting more and more complicated. We had an advantage in 2013 because we can go and run algorithms on Facebook to acquire consumers cheaper than anybody else. But whenever you have an arbitrage like that, um, you know, those arbitrages get um, priced out pretty quickly, right? They get taken advantage of pretty quickly. So just as, uh, just as much as it worked for us in 2013 and 14, it stopped being that efficient in 2015 and 2016. And we realized that once you get your consumer in the door, the best economic return is to be able to uh, really tie them in into your ecosystem, give them no reason to leave your ecosystem than it is to get a net new customer where you have a lot more risk of churn or default or what have you. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction, you need to grow, you need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like onex.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash DealMakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash DealMakers. So go get your own domain. Now, for you guys, you obviously went public, but before going public, how much capital did you guys raise and uh, how was that journey of going from one cycle to the next? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that um, from a macro perspective, and if you, if you go back and you kind of study what happened over the last 15 to 20 to 30 years, you know, after 9-11 and after, um, you know, the, the credit crisis, I think the whole world took on the zero interest rate policy, right? Um, and effectively, as we look back on it right now, it, it probably shouldn't have been that, but that's what it was. And from an inflows perspective, it created a pretty, uh, pretty good environment to, to, to use venture capital. Um, you know, everyone was looking for alpha. The pension funds were looking for alpha. The sovereign wealth funds were looking for alpha. Um, and, um, you know, the, that, that wave of technology that was making things productive were generating ultimately stock market returns, right? So the stock market was 
um, getting getting aggressive returns from technology driven companies. And of course, that was then flowing the alpha that was generated in the stock market was coming back in by way of venture investments. So let's go create more supply for similar returns in the stock market. So we uh, we of course you know kind of benefited from that. We raised just over two hundred fifty million dollars of equity capital in the private markets. Uh, we were about to do a Series D in 2020, right after COVID, and uh, we saw that the public markets were all of a sudden open with the SPAC product, um, and we were able to raise over $300 million through that, uh, in, in, through an IPO. Um, all of it, you know, if you, if, you, if you kind of look at our arc, our evolution, all of that capital has been invested into building what we believe is one of the most dynamic platforms to, uh, to, to, to continue executing that original vision that we had, the original mission of rewiring the financial system, give the consumer no reason to leave your ecosystem. Um, so it's all been towards um, that ideal. And we've, we've, got, you know, we've, we've had a lot of success doing it. And we've also seen a lot of two by fours to our face um, in terms of just the last couple of years in the public markets. But none of that really changes the fact that in the long run, we believe we're off to an incredible value, off, to, off towards building an incredible value proposition for our consumers. If you look at it at a point in time, you can say, oh, wow, that's been super successful. Or you can look at another point in time and say, oh, wow, that's been a disaster. But I take a view of, of this being, you know, when you're, when you're trying to create an iconic American brand, it's going to take time, right? And, some, and what I had to learn over time was that sometimes five years or 10 years or 11 years is not enough. Maybe you need 15 years for that to happen because you need to see um, a, a high cycle, a low cycle, and back to a high cycle may actually take, uh, it take, take significant time. And that's what we're you know, executing around and executing towards. So when you guys uh, went public back in 2021, I mean, you, you were nearing their 3 billion valuation. I guess, uh, what was that journey like of going public? You know, I'm sure that uh, many things, you know, went through your head as well. You know, you came here to the U.S., you know, immigrants, you know, what was going through your head? You know, what, how, how was that journey of going public like? Yeah, look, I, I think that um, when, when we were going public, you never have an appreciation that somehow that, that moment in time is uh, pricing in the the highest the valuation of your sector um, a subset of the sector a subset of the market could be right you you always think that it's going to go it's going to continue uh, performing like it did last year or the year before right um, so you know there was a little bit of just kind of learning about the iron laws of interest rates right that you know as, when you have such a such, such a drastic increase in interest rate regimes. Um, the segments of the market that are going to get hurt are risk assets, right? And, and, and we saw that. And that was a lesson, by the way, that was very easy to forget when you had a 15-year run where um, you effectively had access to capital, uh, very, very easy capital through a zero interest rate policy. So it was, it was a great um, outcome when we, when we raised the capital, but we looked at it at a capital raise. So we were sanguine a little bit because you know, we, it, wasn't, it wasn't our exit, if you will. Um, it was a great milestone. It was great validation that Moneyline was a company that could go public, right? Um, a lot of uh, things, a lot of uh, necessary conditions need to be in place for even that to happen. 
uh, your accounting, your team, regulatory and compliance, getting through an SEC process. We, we just launched a crypto product right in the summer of going through the SEC pro process, right? So getting all of that, um, you know, in a place where, um, you know, you could be public was the biggest milestone. None of us saw it as a exit because, uh, you know, from, from, from a monetization perspective, it wasn't that. It was just more capital to continue executing on the vision. So it did, it, it did provide a little bit of a backdrop to be sanguine about it. But of course, um, you know, human nature is to, uh, is to forget, um, you know, the downside that lies ahead of you as well. And uh, obviously, you know, now operating um, a public company is a little bit different, you know, in the, in the talent side of things. Because, you know, before you had the options, you know, you were able to promise them, hey, you know, whenever we go public or, you know, a liquidity event happens, you know, you're going to make it happen, you know, for yourself, for your family. And you're able to get people to sacrifice a bit and to get that incentive. How do you how do you deal, you know, like with having that on the private, you know, side of things and now on the public side of things, being able to retain and then also, you know, how, how do you go about, you know, that talent, talent side of things? No, it's it's a great question, right? And it's probably one of my biggest uh, challenges, and our team's biggest challenge is, you know, when when you have the ability to take the company public, when you're valued a certain way, you're also able to retain, you're also able to attract some of the best talent in the world, and and that best talent has an expectation of, um, you know, uh, be, being able to think about their stock based comp as as uh as really you know kind of banking on that being recurring every year um and of course when you have you know the drawdown in your in your stock price as we did um you know looking someone in the eye and saying that hey our mission and our vision and the values that our business has are worth fighting for this is a moment in time you know we always uh borrow benjamin graham and warren buffett's uh in the short term it's a voting machine in the long run. It's a weighing machine, idiom all the time, right? But there's only so many times you can say it because ultimately there are market factors. The best talent have bids away. Um, you know, we, we are known for, uh, you know, being one of the best uh, technology breeding grounds, especially around data science, artificial intelligence. Uh, our R&D team is one of the best in the world, right? So, uh, you know, even that, that's just a, you know, objectively, if you look at the number of products that we've been able to launch and scale, um, you know, very few platforms are this built of a super app. Um, so whenever you're able to do that from an outcomes perspective, your team becomes uh, pretty valuable uh, to, for, for everybody else, right? Um, and, you know, we've, we've done a good job of saying, look, the, the vision and the values of the firm are, uh, are, are there. One year does not change the trajectory, the secular tailwinds that are behind us from a consumer adoption perspective, nor a uh, ability for us to create a really large business with a really high margin profile. None of that has changed just just a year later, right? Um, than it was than it was when we went public. And oftentimes, more more times than not, we're able to retain that talent. Um, but again, uh, what's happened in tech also creates opportunities uh, as a mitigant to be able to. Um, uh, to, to get the next wave, right? So I think that's what we're going through right now is that we're realizing that from the outside in, uh, it's still a very dynamic place to grow your career. And you know, we always have to continue investing in our recruiting and, and, and retention platform. Now let's talk about vision because obviously vision, you know, is something, you know, that uh, you've shared, you know, with investors, you know, 
private, you know, on the private side, on the public side now, and then also with employees. So if you were to go to sleep tonight, the, and, and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company is fully realized, what does that world look like? You know, like that vision uh, always needs to get tweaked, right? So, um, you know, if you asked me in, when we were in 2020, the, the the vision was to be a daily destination for money conversations, and um, every transaction that you could think of should be happening on the MoneyLine uh, platform. And we we met that vision. So when you meet that vision, you have to say, okay. You know, what's the vision for the next two years or five years? We acquired a company called Even Financial. We renamed it Engine by Moneyline. Um, Engine is a piece of technology that now powers some of the largest suppliers that you see on the internet. And it powers them to match that supply with the exact with exactly the right financial product that's personalized, contextualized for that consumer at that moment in time, whether it's a credit card, a personal loan, a HELOC, a mortgage, an auto loan. Um, you know, we're able to bind that through a seamless integration. Uh, we also bought a media company, so we can tell stories uh, and we can we, we, we can have content, whether it's, uh, you know, podcasts like this, short form videos, uh, influencer led, creator led. We can now use a fourth, a third dimensional uh, view outside of just, you know, silly blog posts or SEO or SEM to actually talk about financial products, 529A plans, 401ks, how does a personal loan uh, differ from, from, from one provider to the next? With all of that coming together, the vision for Moneyline in the next five years is to be an insights business, right? So we're generating billions of insights uh, from the transactions that we see happening on our bank account, on our invest management, investment management product, on our trading product, on our membership product, on our lending uh, product on our network, where billions of dollars of loans and credit cards are being matched every year. So those, um, you know, what's what consumers do, and importantly, what they don't do, uh, create insights. And we believe that uh, across our enterprise client base of over a thousand clients, we can deliver better brand outcomes, better ROI, better revenue. So if you think of us just as a neobank, and, and we we do get lumped in. Um, and, and people ask us, you know, your, your peer group is A, B, and C. Oftentimes I'm saying, no, 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 you're, you're thinking of us in the wrong way. Um, you know, I, I know we told you that the vision was to be the most built out digital bank when we went public. But what we have seen is that that is just one part that powers the, the, the data business that, that, that's incumbent here at Moneyline, right? The insights business. And now we can use those insights that are being built by the most, that, that are being generated by the most built out digital bank to power a lot of our enterprise clients. And that's been the one big sea uh, change, step function change in why we still think this is a massive business is because we're able to use that flywheel, put the pieces together, and actually build really powerful B2B2C uh, products that we can you know, generate new revenue line items with over time. So we're talking about the uh, future here. So I want to talk about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. So let's say I was to put you into a time machine, D, and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to the days of Barclays, where you were like wondering, what, what do I want to do next? And imagine you were able to sit down, you know, that younger self and Given that one younger self, one piece of advice before launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now? 
the 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 advice is to is to jump in, right? You have to know yourself a little bit. You have to have uh, the confluence of necessary conditions. You know, I had a wife who was working at Goldman. I had a, a, a supportive family. I, I, I'd been in a, a decent career for 10 years. So, you know, I could afford to not get paid for a couple of years, right? So those are, of course, necessary conditions. Um, and, you know, the advice would be, is like, look, you know, if you have the right team, None of that. You're going to figure it out, right? And you know, continue betting on yourself, right? So, you know, as as long as entrepreneurs set up that right confluence of events that that they don't have to, you know, they start a company and then they're worrying about paying rent, or they start a company and then you know the, the, their spouse is unhappy about it. Those things are the sand in the gears that sometimes lead to over agitation. The other advice I'd give to myself is, you know, don't take everything so seriously. Not everything is a fire drill, right? That's a more tactical advice. Uh, and I've learned that probably over the last couple of years to actually let go sometimes and trust the team. You know, if you if you get ChatGPT to uh, summarize all of Bezos' leadership learnings, you know, the top three things it'll always say is, um, you know, hire the best talent. And number two, make sure that that best talent work well with each other. Um, so I'd give myself that advice is that, you know, we always looked at the resume of people when we were hiring them, and we made sure this this guy went to this school, or this guy knows how to do uh, code in this language, and this guy's worked at Google or Facebook or wherever. Uh, more important than any of that is, um, is this person going to be in the trenches with you when things go wrong, which they will? And um, will they uh, be a multiply, multiplier effect for us on the people that they work with? Or are they going to be sort of an asshole that no one wants to work with? They actually demotivate people. Um, thinking about that second derivative, now that I'm just kind of rambling, I realize that that would probably be the number one advice is make sure that the people that you're hiring spend the time up front, create the right channels or the right context, the right first principle thinking that they all work well together. That's very profound, Dee. So for the people that are that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, look, you can always email me, uh, dc at moneyline.com. Um, yeah. Amazing. I'll well, do hey, that first time, yeah. Is it, is it enough, Dean? Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.